Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Greetings, dear listeners. This is another exciting episode of the Remnant Podcast, now with uh, Dispatch Media, host of the dis- Dispatch.com, the G-File, and um, other floor waxes and uh, dessert toppings. And this episode of the Remnant is brought to you by the Online Trading Academy. More about that in a little bit. We have in the studio, people You know, people give me a lot of hard time that I have all these conservative wonks and eggheads and scholar types, and... I don't get outside of my bubble enough by having people who, like, disagree with me on sort of political and partisan things. And so we're going to try to change that in the weeks and months to come. And so one of uh, – it's not entirely fair anyway, but um, one of the people we've decided to sort of put one in that column is uh, Mo Alethi. is a friend of mine from Fox News, Fox News Sunday occasionally. And you were – what is your title at Georgetown? I'm the executive director of Georgetown University's Institute of Politics and Public Service. There you go. And so um, I got to ask – I've been meaning to ask you this for a long time. Alethi, is it an Ethiopian name? It's Egyptian. It's actually. Egyptian. Yeah. Is it really? Okay. Yeah, I'm first generation. Both of my parents are immigrants uh-huh. They uh, from Cairo and they moved to the United States about a year before I was born uh-huh. um, in search of the American dream. There you go. So how often is it mispronounced? Just about every time. I, I've got friends who I've known for 20 years who still pronounce it differently each time they say it. Is that right? So, so yeah. you, you came very close, closer than most. Is that right? How, how, what, what is the correct? The correct is Alethi. Alethi. Yeah. Alethi. Yeah. Does Chris Wallace get it right? Most of the time. Okay. Um, people get Goldberg right all the time, but you'd be amazed how many people get Jonah right. I'm not surprised. Um, I'm not it's, surprised. It's, 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 it's one of my many albatrosses. Okay, so uh, things are going great. Right. Um, <laughs> why don't you? Why don't we start with some rank punditry? You used to work at the DNC. Yeah. Uh, you were involved in Democratic politics for a long time. What is your sort of shakedown of just where you see the Democratic race right now? So I think it's still an open uh, an open field. I mean, I think the field has winnowed significantly. There were candidates. Uh, you know, you asked me six months ago, I maybe would have picked five or six candidates that I thought had a legit shot at the nomination. That I think number is much smaller now. It seems right now, by most accounts, that it is a a two-person race, um, that it is more likely than not that the nominee will be Biden or Warren. 
Um, I don't necessarily disagree with that, but I would think that there are still a couple of others who you know make who who could make a triple bank shot mm-hmm. um, uh, and and be up there. Um, Buttigieg is still hanging in there, and he's got the money to go the distance. Yeah, and he's one of those guys who like when you see him in the room, you see a lot of heads nodding. Yeah. Um, which is always a good sign. I'm I'm less interested in the crowd size and more interested in the number of heads that are nodding along with you. And he's he you see him making some moves in some of the early states. Um, Bernie, of course, you know has the resources to go the distance. We'll see if now um, because of his health issues, now that he's scaling back his campaign schedule, how that impacts. He also has nothing campaign. to lose, right? He's 78. What's that's he going right. to do? Run again when he's 80? No, that's right. You know? That's right. And he's more of. Uh, I think a movement candidate than than some of the others, right? He's in it for you know less pure political reasons, I would argue, than some of the others. Um, you could maybe see see an argument for a couple of the others to hang in a little bit longer, but I think it's it's pretty winnowed now down to to those few. Um, so maybe you can answer this. This is something I've talked about a bunch on there on here. Is that in twenty sixteen, you might recall. Hillary won the nomination. Mm -hmm. Bernie did not. And yet in 2020, with the exception of Biden, they all seem to be running for the Sanders vote. And maybe a little bit, maybe not. um, All right. So not Delaney. Right. And some of these really Mm -hmm. small people or single issue people. And Klobuchar on odd number days is trying to sound like a moderate. But for the most part, Warren Buttigieg, it's very much a left wing of the party message. And. Why is that? Why is it that that everyone seems to be convinced that that's where the future of the party is? That's how you win elections is to appeal to the the much, you know, the sort of not what Harry Enten calls the yeah. hidden Democratic Party, but the sort of very vocal AOC part of the Democratic Party. So I actually have a couple of different ways that I think about this. And since we're, I'm on a podcast with a high minded individual such as yourself, I know I'll have the room to kind of wander here. Absolutely. We, we approve of wandering. Not, but, not as much as Joe Biden does with some of the right. sentences, but, you know, but. but <laughs> But a little bit, a, a little bit of room here. Yeah. So first of all, I think you know your question. If you're looking at the left versus right, you know, left versus center left paradigm, is a good question because if you look at 2018, the candidates who ran for Congress from the far left of the party lost more right. primaries. Right to more center-left candidates than the other way around. So while the storyline out of 2018 was much about the rise of the AOC wing of the party, that actually didn't bear out electorally within Democratic primaries in 2018. Or in the general, right? I mean, the majority makers right. were the center-left guys, That's right. were, were That's right. more moderate guys. That's right. But a number of them, in order to, to win, had to win primaries first, right. and they right. defeated That's more candidates more from the left. So the Democratic electorate in the midterm tended to be a little bit more center-left than left. But you know as well as I do that that who dominates the presidential primaries tend to be your most activist uh, voters. Mm -hmm. And they tend to be a little bit, you know, to the further right in a Republican primary and to the further left in a Democratic primary. But I have a slightly different take on this. And and it requires taking a a step back a little bit. I think we're in a populist era globally. And we have been now for at least a quarter of a century. And that outside of the the Acela corridor, the the driving paradigm in the mind of most voters is not left versus right. It has shifted to in versus out. Mm-hmm. It is 
those who feel left behind by the system uh, going up against those who they believe are gaming the system. And if you look back at our politics over the past quarter century, that very much bears out, right? Bill Clinton's you could even go further back to sort of the immediate post-Watergate era. But Bill Clinton in 92 ran on a core message that the middle class is being left behind and they need an advocate. A very populist message. Mm-hmm. Everyone remembers hope and change back in 08 from Obama. But the real core of his message was the special interests are leaving you behind and you need someone to take them on. We are the ones we've been waiting for. We are the change we've been waiting for. Yeah. That's a very populist message. One year later... You had what looked like two competing movements ascendant in our politics in the Tea Party and the Occupy movement. But they both had identical messages. Wall Street and Washington are in cahoots and we're being left behind. Now, they took different approaches. Tea Party focused on the Washington part of the equation. Occupy movement focused on the Wall Street part of the equation. But they identified the same problems. Tea Party's also cleaned up after themselves better, just if we're keeping score. <laughs> <laughs> but then, you know, and then, in, of course, in 2016, Donald Trump comes down that escalator and famously says, the whole thing is broken. Right. The, the whole system is screwing everybody. So we're in this populist era. And I believe there are different flavors of populist. There's mm-hmm. different ide- uh, ideological flavors of populism. There's also hopeful populism, aspirational populism, and angry populism. Mm-hmm. So if you accept that premise, I what I see in the Democratic field is less a lurch to the left ideologically, but a number of candidates who are trying to stake out sort of a new definition of what it means to be a populist. Mm-hmm. Some of them are obvious. Bernie. Right. Warren. But even when you look at someone like a Biden who's trying to run as a centrist, he's trying to run, I, I would say, more in that, you know, Bill Clinton, I'm, I, I get you. Right. I'm your I'm your champion. I've always been your champion space. Pete Buttigieg is trying to be sort of a new generation of person, new generation of populist who's trying to mobilize folks. The ones that sort of get that are the ones who I think are in the best position, the ones that are still playing the straight up left versus center left game are the ones who I you're not seeing a ton of traction with. And so I've always said since the beginning of this race, that the Democrats' best answer to the angry populist that is Donald Trump is an aspirational populist. Mm-hmm. And so, and it's also got to be genuine. It's got to be authentic. It can't be someone who parachutes in, dripping of elitism, saying, I am now a populist. That's just not right. going to fly. So finding that authentically genuine aspirational populist is where I think the future of the party is. That could be on the far left. That could be on the center left. But that's the key. Um, and that's what I think folks are trying to trying to figure out. No, it's an interesting way of thinking about it. And I, and I think you're right. I mean, about being in a populist moment, I might date it differently. Certainly, you can, you can, you know, you can find evidence for it being a populist moment going back 25 years. You can find evidence being a series of populist moments going back 50 years, right? right. I mean, I mean, there's just, there've been a lot of them. And no, it really, I think it really started to take hold in that post Watergate era when public trust in institutions was shattered, right? So Jimmy Carter, the outsider comes in, in that to try to make the case. And Ronald Reagan was in many ways a populist, um, more from the other end of the, of the, of the spectrum. Um, but they all made appeals to sort of everyday voters in their own ways. 
what we've seen over those 50 years, though, is that public distrust in institutions is growing. And voters keep saying, someone do something about that, Mm -hmm. right? It's it's astonishing to me that we are living in an era where public trust is upside down in for every single major American institution except for one, the military. That's the only one that people feel good about. They don't trust politics. They don't trust Wall Street. They don't trust Silicon Valley. They don't trust academia. They don't trust the media. They don't trust police. People uh, – and it gets worse with each year. And they keep saying somebody do something about this. We're going to put our hope in a Bill Clinton. And if we don't feel like he did it, we're going to go to a George Bush. And if we don't feel like he did it, we're going to go to a Barack Obama. They keep, that explains why there were 200 counties out there that voted twice for Barack Obama and then voted for Donald Trump. Those 200 counties didn't suddenly become racist. Those 200 counties said we're still not getting what we're looking for. Right. Yeah, no, I mean – what I was going to say is that I think you can make a very strong case. And there was a really interesting paper in the – I think it's called the European Journal of Political Science that looked at populist upheavals going back to like 1820 both in Europe and, and, mm-hmm. and I think in the United States too. And there are a lot. I mean there are a lot of them. Yeah. And, um, and you're right that they take different flavors. But I think one of the things that turned populism kind of – turned up the dial – on it in the states was the financial crisis. Yes, right. Yes. And one of the things that these guys—I should memorize their names. One of these guys found is that the tail of a populist upheaval is much longer after finan- certain kinds of financial crises, because if something just just takes a huge bite out of the value of your home, which is your biggest asset, or um, you lose your job during a time of economic transition and you can't find any job to replace the wages at the same level. Mm-hmm. You're just pissed off about that a lot longer than yeah. you would be about other things, right? Well, and add to that a changing world, right? right? I mean, we're going through we, – we saw this similarly uh, you know, a century ago in the transition from an agrarian economy to an industrial economy. We're going through that now with the transition from an industrial economy to a digital economy. Um, our, our way of life is changing. Right. And that adds to the angst that fuels populism. Um but I still believe that aspirational is ultimately going to win out over angry. And electorally, it's a simple calculus, at least from my perspective. If I'm upset, I don't want to stay upset. I may want to yell and shout for a while. Right. But ultimately, I want someone that's going to make me feel better. I don't want to go to bed angry. I want to feel better before before the end of the day. And But in the absence of that, if I don't have someone that makes me feel better, then I'm going to go with the person that at least understands me enough to join me in shouting and screaming. Right. That's what I think we saw in 2016. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I think that sort of someone who can appeal to your better angels while still giving you that sense that you got that, you know, that you got my back. That's what I think voters are looking for and grappling with, at least in the Democratic primary right now. I, I want to come back to the, the, the punditry and the yeah. cephology in a second. But just as a conservative – of a certain bent, mm-hmm. some might say politically homeless these yes. days. I have a slightly different take on it in that I get why you would prefer aspirational to demagogic or aspirational yeah. to mean. But as a conservative, uh, part of my argument would be that we are doomed to keep repeating these cycles of aspirational and hmm. negative populism so long as people running for president of the United States – keep promising things 
that the government in Washington cannot do for them and cannot deliver on. And so you had, you know, you had Barack Obama selling a lot of hope and change, promising this very, you know, to fundamentally transform the country and all these kinds of things. We are the ones we've been waiting for. And then the payoff was much less than the promise. Donald Trump's done the same thing. I mean, he mm -hmm. voted to fix everything. He was going to balance the budget, you know. Right, right. But um, you have now in the primaries, you have people like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and Kamala Harris literally promising on a fairly regular basis to do things that are either literally impossible, politically impossible, or just baldly unconstitutional. And part of my problem with how we got into the mess that we're in, particularly on the right, is that we've had for a while now these politicians who overpromise and underdeliver precisely because it's impossible to deliver on the full promise. And when you tell people that you can do something like completely get off of fossil fuels in five years or 10 years or whatever it is, you're not going to be able to deliver that. And what you end up doing is you end up convincing people that this was possible because you said it was possible. And then when you don't deliver, what people conclude from that is, oh, unseen forces, the system, the deep state, the Jews, the globalists, whoever it is, they stopped us from getting what we want. Right. And that in itself germinates a new round of sort of populist suspicion about the government. If you want people to be less pissed off about the government in Washington, stop telling them that the government in Washington can do all of these things for them that it can't actually do. So and I'd take it one step further to say it's not just a problem – maybe this is the progressive in me – that it's not just a problem with how people view government, but it's how people view the system, right? Mm -hmm. I mean on the flip side, I think people are also frustrated when they hear people say government just needs to get out of the way and let the market sort all this out sure. because they saw that – the downside of that, that led to the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the fact that there were all these bad actors on Wall Street who tanked the global economy because of their greed, um, their lack of, of, of looking out for the little guy. And someone's got to rein that in sure. as well. And so government over promises, there's, you know, the, uh, uh, Business, the market, I think right? that's a fair point. The market overpromises. The market overpromises, or those in the government who say trust in the market mm -hmm. um, overpromise the 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 uh, how well the market will look out for you. So I think it is a problem on both sides. You know, one of the challenges as an old campaign guy, mm. um, where I've sat in a lot of meetings for at all levels, right? Congressional races, mayoral races, gubernatorial races. You try to strike the balance about. You know, how much do you talk about the specifics of a realistic plan versus how much are you sort of trying to sell a worldview? How much are you trying to be aspirational and say, this is what we want to achieve. This is where we hope to end up one day. And here are the steps that we need to take to get there. Some candidates have been better about articulating that. I believe uh, Bill Clinton was one of the best at that. Right? Bill Clinton articulated a worldview but didn't overpromise how to get there. This is what we this is the ideal. This is where we want to be. Here's how I can get you part of the way there. Mm -hmm. And then we will keep that journey will continue. Even Barack Obama talked about that a lot of times. The long path of history, you know, the the the, the arc, arc of history, history right, yeah. is is long and winding and um and it's not a straight line. But I've got to put some of this on the voter. Mm 
mm-hmm. and not just on the the politicians. Because one of the reasons politicians speak like that is because that's what appeals to voters. Yeah, yeah. Voters, we have the system that we ask for right now. Um, it's why you see media as as challenging as it is right now because. You know, I hear so many people complain. Cable news is terrible. Cable news is so polarizing. You know, it's so tribal. But that's where the ratings are. They're responding to the market. Politicians respond to the market, the market of, you know, uh, the the voter market. And until we start, voters start accepting an incremental approach to that ideal, candidates are going to keep promising the ideal without the incrementalism. And, right. and that's going to, I think we're in sort of this vicious cycle. And that's, that's fundamentally one of the biggest problems with populism. Populism historically sees any impediment to the group, the peoples, it's all, and when I, I say the people, I'm using air quotes because it's not really all of the people. It's a subset of the people, whether it's, you know, agrarian, free silverites or whoever. And, but they see that any impediment to their desire as being inherently illegitimate. So yeah. that's the difference between populism and democracy. Democracy has rules. Yes. Populism has, has will. Yeah. And there's a great episode of The Simpsons where Homer is running for sanitation commissioner, I think, and he runs an explicitly populist campaign. <laughs> and so, first of all, he says, my opponent says there are no easy answers. I say... He's not looking hard enough. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then, exactly. And at one point he says to this crowd, people, there are dogs crapping in our own homes. And they're telling us that we're the ones who have to pick it up. <laughs> <laughs> right. But right. there's that attitude that, that – and I think millennials have it in their own way too, which is that everything should be convenient. And the government should be doing convenient stuff – doing the inconvenient stuff – that I can't do for myself. And I, and then there are the oldsters on the right who have it about how, you know, I mean, the cl- the classic, somewhat unfair, but classic sign was that lady at the Tea Party thing and said, you know, government, keep your hands off my Medicare. Right. Um, right. Right. You right. know, I mean, there's, there are versions of it all over the no, place. No, that's right. And, and the tribalism that fuels a lot of this is making it harder, right? We were talking right before we hit record about, so my institute... Uh, does some polling on civility in politics, mm. on what are Americans' attitudes towards that? Because everyone seems to think it's terrible. And it's really fascinating if you ask them how bad do they think it is and who do they blame. But the part I really wanted to get at was um, – and and they think it's bad and they blame everyone, even right. their own side. Yeah. But we want. I wanted to get at like what – do they really want it? Mm-hmm. And so we asked the question a number of different ways. One, straight up, do you want it? And like 88% say yes. You know, I've always wanted to meet – I want to meet those 12% that say no, I don't want our politics to be more civil. But then we asked the question a couple different ways. Agree or disagree with the following statements. One, common ground and compromise are noble goals we want our political leaders to aspire to. 83% of respondents said they agree with that. Mm-hmm. Very next question, agree or disagree. I am tired of politicians who compromise on my values. I want them to stand up to the other side. Yeah. And 80% yeah. agreed with that. And I think it's related to what we're talking about, right? It's more than just civility in politics that we demand as voters certain things. 
And while we say we want this grand experiment of democracy to work a certain way and that that it necessitates compromise, at the end of the day, the only compromise we accept is where the only common ground we accept is the spot we're standing at. Right. Right. Sure. We can find common ground. Move over here to where I'm standing and then we'll be on common ground. And I think that is true, but not just in terms of how the two political ideologies or I guess these days multiple political ideologies in Washington interface with one another. But it gets to this bigger thing of of what is it our what is it the electorate is demanding and how does that impact what their political leaders are offering? Right. All right, well let's go just for a second back to the the rank punditry stuff. Yeah. Um um so I've been saying for a while that if you just go by Admittedly, these are the rules before we got into this weird timeline, right? Um, Earth uh, Earth logic, like the Earth logic we knew as children. If you just look at the numbers, Trump can't win in terms of the Electoral College. But I've also said the Democrats can lose. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you, if you if you just look at the, what is it, 78,000 votes in five counties mm-hmm. that he pl- picked the Electoral College with – you look how he's underwater in all the states that, that flipped it for him on all the rest and how he's the first president in our lifetimes and maybe in American history to – with the exception maybe of Jackson who's governed, who's governed without concern about expanding his base, expanding his coalition. Mm-hmm. And um, you take all into account. It's very hard to see how he could win. And then you see how the Democrats are winning and you say, ah, you can see how they could lose. Um, right? I – you know, it seems – obvious to me that if the Democrats could find the right candidate, Biden would be if he didn't seem off a step a little bit to me, but we'll, we can talk about that, that just running on a campaign of a return to normalcy of a sort of a, uh, you know, we got, there are important things to do in this country, but things are, seem off the rails, they're out of balance. And instead of sort of swinging for the fences for, you know, the Green New Deal and socialized medicine and all that stuff, if they just said, look, we're going to run on sort of improving some of the things that Obama couldn't get done. You know, we're Clinton-Obama hybrid. I'm a nice guy. You'd like to have a beer with me. Or I'm a nice gal. You'd like to have a beer with me. That's a winning formula for the Democrats. And yet it seems impossible institutionally for the Democrats to, to produce a candidate like that. We'll see. I'm not so sure. I mean, look, there's a lot of historical precedents that are conflicting, right, as to that, you know, if we were to look at, you know, no president Every president who's run for re-election during a time of economic prosperity and peace has won re-election. Right. Right. And you could argue we are there now, though there may be some signs that the economy is slowing. And if right. it does slow more in the next year, that's a huge problem for the president. Interestingly, a lot of polls right now are showing that um, people give him a lot of credit for the economy but have no trust in the trajectory of the economy. Mm-hmm. That they think it will get worse in the next year. And that could be a, a problem for him. But I think fundamentally you're right. And my argument to my colleagues in the Democratic Party is talking about Trump. Yeah, we need to do that a bit. But people's made up their minds on him. They know where they are on him. So what we need to do is demonstrate what the alternative is. Mm-hmm. Fundamentally, people are asking one one simple question. Do you have my back or not? And so – to say the the messaging against Trump needs to be has have a laser like focus of he actually doesn't have your back wow. and make that argument. But here's how we do. And so when they are talking about things like the Green New Deal, when they're talking about you know their various competing uh, healthcare proposals, 
That's the argument they need to make. It's a values-based argument more than anything else. Um, Whether or not a majority of the electorate in either a primary or a general election actually gets into and focuses their attention on the nuances Mm -hmm. of the different policy proposals, I'm not so sure. Um, But if they get that the choices between someone that wants to make health care more accessible and affordable for more people versus those, you know, someone who wants to eliminate protections for pre-existing conditions. That's a values-based argument that the Democratic Party can win on. It's a values-based argument that they won on in 2018. If the argument is, I don't know how much of an, you know, how high of a of a, a, a of an issue climate will be in the minds of most voters in a general election, but if the argument is between a candidate who wants to fight, who believes that climate change is happening and wants to mitigate it versus someone who doesn't, that's a values-based argument. The rest of it will, will kind of settle itself out, but people don't vote on policy, mm-hmm. and they, really, they typically haven't. If they did, you know, Mitt Romney would have won mm-hmm. in 2012 with the sheer volume of policy papers that he put out. Same with Hillary Clinton. They vote more on sort of that worldview, and that's what they need to focus on. Now, having said that, it then becomes an argument of how you define those worldviews, both of yourself and your opponent. And Donald Trump could easily say my opponent's worldview is socialist. Mm-hmm. And then they got to they got to litigate that. But I think that's kind of I want candidates out there who are able to make the values based argument about where we're headed. Um, as opposed to getting too caught up in the nuances of the policy. Mm-hmm. Because that's ultimately what what people are going to decide on. So, but I mean, I, I, I take your point. I think you're probably right about people not getting in the weeds on the specific policy stuff in general. But there are also there are also like some third rails, right? Yeah, sure. Now, and, sure, sure, sure. And so, I can you explain to me what is it? Just a matter of signaling or something? What in the world is Elizabeth Warren thinking? When she says she's going to ban fracking day one, forget the constitutional and legal right, issues right, there because right, right, right. she, she literally can't. Congress has spoken on this and so have the courts. But she needs to win Pennsylvania. Fracking is really popular. Fracking has saved Western Pennsylvania in terms of like those lunch bucket jobs kind of things. What is she getting out of that transactionally? Let's say for the sake of argument, she believes it. You it's know. Just, so talking pure politics, yeah. I think – you know, there's some there. There's an argument within the Democratic Party that Democrats need to do with the left what Trump did with the right mm-hmm. last time, which is drag out those people who believe in this worldview but haven't felt motivated to vote. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe the argument is that there's a significant tr- and, and we saw Trump do that in mm-hmm. 2016, right? Clinton hit all of her numbers in Florida, for example, right. but. They did not see this wave of frustrated working class white voters right. in rural Florida who had never voted before right. that the Trump campaign, honestly, that the RNC right. was able to pull out for the but Trump. That campaign. was actually Cruz's strategy. There was this hidden 10 million white voters right. and the Trump the, guys. Took right. It. The silent majority. Right. We've talked about this throughout history. And so I think that there's a feeling among some in the Democratic Party that that's what needs to be done, that it's not reaching out. It's not pulling in uh, disaffected um, uh, white working class voters who defected to Trump last time, that there's all these unmotivated 
folks on the left who do believe fracking is bad, who do believe in, you know, whatever your whole sort of list like the of the, the, Nader, the Naderites who, or the Marianne Williams. Yeah, names. that there's so many people out there who are just so frustrated about climate change, but they just haven't felt like compelled to vote that that we can reach is, out to them. Is there empirical evidence that they're out there? I think there's – well, look, this is one of my biggest frustrations with the state of our politics today is that the – um, re- over-reliance on big data mm-hmm. would tell you whether or not they're there. And so if you see candidates doing this stuff, it's because they're seeing data that says they're there. Here's my problem with that, is I actually do believe um, you know, every campaign is an exercise in uh, managing limited resources. You only have X number of dollars. Right. And you got to do two things with those dollars. You've got to mobilize your base, which includes pulling out people who are likely to be with you and persuading. Mm-hmm. But it's cheaper to mobilize than it is to persuade. Mm-hmm. And so now that we've got all this sophisticated analytics and data-driven political campaign tools, we can better find those who agree with us and mine for those votes and deliver sort of a more strident message to them mm-hmm. to pull them out, a la RNC 2016. Right. We don't have to spend as many resources trying to persuade and win over those people who are sitting in the middle. And so I, I, my guess is the campaigns are seeing something there that tells them that there could be enough of those voters. Now, I think it's a false choice, and I hate the over-reliance on data. Mm-hmm. I think that a true message ought to be able to do both. A true uh, uh, campaign message ought to be able – to persuade and mobilize. And so I hope you see some of that. What's interesting, on the healthcare issue, I saw something in the last debate that kind of um, uh, caught my interest. The first 30 minutes or so, 25 minutes of the last Democratic debate was dominated in a three-way argument between Biden, Bernie, and Warren on healthcare. Mm-hmm. And Biden kind of going after sort of this aggressive eliminate private insurance and Bernie and Warren on the other side pushing back. Then some of the other candidates got involved. And you saw Klobuchar and you saw Buttigieg and even Harris to some extent push back on the Biden-Warren argument and say, no, we're not going to go that far. They, they tweaked Biden a little bit as well. Right. But they were closer to where he was. So even a majority of the candidates on that stage were we're seeing and signaling we are not for a purely socialized medicine approach, that we can build on the successes of the Affordable Care Act and we can we can get closer to, you know, but it's not going to be this eliminate an entire industry approach, which signals to me that what more folks in the Democratic Party are seeing is um, are some red flags to that Biden or that Bernie Warren approach. Yeah. Well, it's funny because, I mean, like, uh, if there's a single candidate who is presumably not driven by data analytics, it's Bernie Sanders. Right. <laughs> and yet that's right. people are all moving to his positions with the ex- – I mean, I, I take your point about but, that. But, 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 not, but not fully. With nuance. Yeah, no, right? I, I think Buttigieg is, you know, response on this cuts the Gordian knot perfectly. He says – Medicare for all who want it. Who want it. Yeah, which is just like who doesn't like a message that says you can have the good thing if you want it 
or not having. I mean, that's the essence of the public option, right? Right. right, With the stress on the word option, right? Um, Not a public mandate, a public option, right? And so I do think that I do think that the narrative that has been created, that the entire Democratic Party and Democratic field is rushing towards a socialist approach, is not actually accurate. Yeah, I don't think that bears out at the grassroots level. I think it's true amongst the loudest voices, uh, uh, sort of in the activist class. Mm. But I don't think that's true. I think you still have a more, you know, progressive but nuanced approach amongst the majority of the Democratic Party. Yeah, and it's. I've been arguing this for a long time that 95% of the people who are arguing for quote unquote socialism don't haven't read any Marx. They don't, you know, they're not talking no. about any of that kind of stuff. What they mean is they, they, if, if what we have now of the status quo is capitalism, I want the opposite of that. That sounds to me like socialism and it's much more of a psychological or, or a, marketing phrase than it is a serious coherent ideological position. I think it's the essence of the essence of the argument is unfettered capitalism isn't working for us. Right. Right. Well, at least working a, for me. Isn't yeah. working for me. And you do see some you do see more movement towards that. So I used to work for Mark Warner, mm-hmm. now the senator from Virginia. I worked for him when he first ran for governor back in two thousand one. And he was a businessman running for statewide office. And his whole argument was sort of that old DLC, let's run government more like a business, let's balance the books. The Virginia uh, budget was in shambles at the end of Jim Gilmore's administration. He was the guy going to bring a sensible business approach. He was the ultimate democratic capitalist, right? The guy founded Nextel. And he's recently out there saying, capitalism in its current form isn't working for everyone and we need to figure out how to fix that. Mm -hmm. That is where I think the heart of the Democratic Party is right now. And so I think you're right when people are saying, if given the choice between two words, capitalism and socialism, it's a little bit muddier for some people because they don't believe unfettered capitalism works for them. Right. I would argue they haven't had it. I mean, the idea that this is an unregulated economy. I would say it's not true, but we're talking about perception. But we're talking about perceptions yeah. and with real ramifications sure. a la the 2008 financial crisis, right. right? I mean, everything was still regulated then, and it still collapsed and took a lot of people out. And so they're saying, well, that doesn't work for right. me. And I would argue, and a lot of people at AEI yeah. would argue, that a lot of the regulations were how that thing got messed up in the first place. We were pushing people into housing they couldn't afford. We changed all these rules. And so, I mean, this is a great frustration. I think that it's mere frustration between socialists and capitalists is that each side claims that what we're actually advocating was never actually tried. And what happens is you get screw-ups in the mixture of regulation and free markets that everyone can point to the other team and say, see, they screwed it up. And I I get that. And And there's a role for regulation. And then politics mucks it all up, right? I mean – with the exception of Bernie, who even Bernie is framing it. I'm not a socialist. I'm a democratic socialist. Right. And he's now given two big speeches, one in 2015 at Georgetown and <laughs> one uh, just you know earlier this year on what it means to be a democratic socialist. But you ask Elizabeth Warren flat out. She says, yeah. no, I'm a capitalist. Right. Right. I mean, so but it is easier politically for Republicans to paint them all as as uh, socialists and and. It works in the reverse on our side. I know a lot of sort of Main Street Republicans who don't walk away from all form of regulation, right? Right. But 
we tend to say they are all they want unfettered, right? Like let Wall Street run amok, right? Rand, Paul, I mean, uh, Paul Ryan is a disciple of Ayn Rand and all that, in which he wasn't, and you know, wants to throw people off cliffs, and the you know, the, you know, there's that classic talking point that. All liber- why don't libertarians want to live in Somalia because it's yeah. got such a small state, you know, and all yeah. that. What's really interesting, though, from my sort of ivory tower of academia now is it's really interesting to see how a lot of these fundamental norms that have guided, you know, gray hairs like you and I for so long are being challenged for the first time. Yeah. Capitalism, right, the role of capitalism. That was, you know, when I was a young Democrat getting involved in politics, like we never questioned capitalism. Right. That was a fundamental norm of our democracy. The other one that's really interesting, not to go off on too much of a tangent, we like um, free speech. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? The First Amendment, where you've now seen a couple of polls in recent years where when you ask young people, which is the more important value, protecting free speech or stopping hate speech? For the first time, a slim majority of young people say stopping hate speech. Right. If that becomes the actual new norm, that has profound implications on our democracy. Um, and so I do feel like, you know, this is all connected. Everything mm-hmm. we're talking about is connected. I do think we're in an era where for the first time, at least in my lifetime, um, people are really taking a hard look at our fundamental democratic norms, or what right. we've always considered to be democratic norms, and having a conversation about them. Yeah, no, um, it is definitely true that there are a lot of people out there who feel like the system is rigged. I often say on this podcast that if there's one thing I could have leaders understand is that um, complexity is a subsidy. Mm-hmm. If you're rich, if you're really smart, if you're really well educated. If you're really well connected, if you have a lot of social capital, new complex rules are barriers to entry for other people because Uh you can always get a lawyer or call your uncle or whatever to work around them. And that's why you sort of need simple rules for simple society. No, so it's funny. You know, one of the things that drives a lot of people crazy is they kind of feel like they're on the outside of Wall Street. They're outside of all these big financial institutions. They're making these decisions and skimming all the profit off the top. And one of the things that uh, the that Online Trading Academy does is it teaches people how to be better um, consumers and operators of their own uh, financial products and financial future. So, you know, what it does is it basically trains you up to be financially literate, literate to be Wall Street literate, to be better able to navigate the world on your own. Online Trading Academy wants you to start knowing Now, as a leader in investing and trading education, Online Trading Academy teaches people just like you a step-by-step process designed to help you make the right moves in the financial markets. You'll discover common investor mistakes, learn about risk management skills, and how to develop a personal income and wealth education plan. It's simple to get started. OTA's Flexible learning style lets you take classes at one of their more than 40 financial education centers or in an online classroom from the comfort and convenience of your own home. Students have given Online Trading Academy a 94% satisfaction rating based on more than 190,000 reviews. No one will ever care about your financial future as much as you do. So now is the time to start learning how education can help you take better control of your financial future from now on. A strong economy is the best time to prepare for a bad one. 
sorry, what would you do if you knew skills designed to help you generate income and build confidence towards your retirement goals? Get started by joining more than 500,000 people who've attended one of OTA's free classes. So, uh, you know, here's the deal. It's just basically, it's a way to sort of become literate. I'm not saying that you have to become a day trader. They're not saying you have to become a day trader. But even if you're still working with a broker or a larger financial institution, it is a way to understand your own interests, understand where these hidden fees often come from and all the rest in a way that at least empowers you to be a better steward of your own finances. So sign up for a free three-hour introductory class at otatrade.com slash dingo. That's otatrade.com slash dingo. There's a free class in your area. Register at otatrade.com slash d-i-n-g-o. You'll even receive their professional insider's kit just for attending. That's otatrade.com slash dingo. Begin taking control of your financial future today with no obligation. All right, so I want to I want to want to change this sort of slightly. Um, you're a uh, a veteran Democrat, you know, inside the belly of the beast. Well, I guess well, there's sort of two questions I want to ask. One is, people always ask, is there any chance for a third party? And we know that structurally, that's really really hard, right? But I I think more and more. It's entirely possible that the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, more likely the Republican Party, could implode. And if that happened, you'd still have something called the Republican Party, but it could change pretty dramatically. And because we live in this era of negative partisanship where a lot of people are Democrats just because they hate Republicans and a lot of people say they're Republicans just because they hate Democrats, if one party dies, the other party could lose its reason to live. And we could see both parties – and so this gets to the point – like – Growing up as a little policy gnome and all that kind of stuff, I always used to argue that the Republican Party was more what I used to call ideational. It was like, we believe in these things. If you, As Reagan used to say, if you believe in seven out of these ten things, you're one of us, right? And the Democratic Party coming out of the FDR coalition was more coalitional. It was like there was no obvious reason why the party of same-sex marriage should also be the party of the Teamsters. Yeah. Um, it seems – in the last 10 years that the Democratic Party is becoming much more of an ideological party and the Republican Party is becoming much more coalitional in part because these coalitions can't – very few people can make an ideological case for Trumpism. They have to make this sort of transactional argument and they're, well, he's good for my coalition. He's good for my people. He's delivering my yeah. judges. Do you see that from the Democratic side? It's interesting. Maybe a little bit differently. Because I, I, I would have argued that for much of the last generation, the Republican Party was very coalitional, mm-hmm. right? It was – you had your your sort of your Wall Street Republicans. You had your Libertarian Republicans. You had your Evangelical Republicans. But where I agree is that sort of Republican leadership figured out what those seven ideas were that right. they could connect all those together. Democrats have policies that they can point to but less – of a worldview had been, I think, part of the challenge. I think Obama did a good job and Clinton did a good job of sort of defining what the worldview is. Um, When I was at the DNC in the run-up to the 2014 election, we did a series of focus groups around the country. 
we did something I hadn't seen in focus groups before that I thought was pretty cool. The moderator gave everyone a piece of paper and a pencil and said, I'm going to say a word and I want you to draw a picture. Take 15 seconds. So don't like Mm -hmm. pull out your old art school like chops. Just first thing that comes to mind. The first word was Republican. And it's focus group. So you get all sorts of different answers. But we did this around the country over the course of of like a week or two. And you guess what the most commonly drawn picture was for a Republican? Mm. And these are among independent voters. Yeah. It was a dollar sign. Huh. And when we teased it out, they said, well, it's because the Republican Party is the party of the wealthy. So I'm like the spokesman for the DNC. I'm like, okay, right on. Like, yeah. you know, like this is good for us. Even though the data is a little more mixed on that one. <laughs> right. But, but that was the vibe that people right. had of what it meant to be a Republican. Right. Then we flipped over the paper and the next word was Democrat. And we asked people... You know, what comes to mind for Democrat? The most commonly drawn picture? Uh. A question mark. Huh. That was like a kick to the gut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Because I think part of the challenge is, and when we teased it out and we asked these independent voters, many of them white independent mm-hmm. voters, what, the, why? And they said, well, I get it. It's the party for black people. It's the party for Hispanics. It's the party for women. It's the party for young people. It's the party for, you know, gay people. But there wasn't anything connecting those dots mm-hmm. in the minds of these everyday voters. And so the Democratic Party has to get to a point where much like the par- the Republican Party in the 80s and even 90s, where you could draw a line between a New York Democrat and a Nebraska Democrat or an FDR Democrat to a JFK Democrat to a Bill Clinton to a Barack Obama to whomever's next. What is that What is that story? What is that narrative that makes all those people Democrats? Mm -hmm. And Republicans used to do it better. Now, I would argue that they are struggling more with it today than Democrats are. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think you would agree with that. And I think Donald Trump in many ways is sort of the the first third party president we've had. Right. He defeated the the traditional Republican Party Mm -hmm. before he defeated the Democratic Party. So, but he's still been able to find at least a couple of big issues, a couple of big ideas that conservatives can hang their hats on and say, I don't like the guy, but at least on these three things, we're still in the same place, taxes and and judges being, being the most. But the challenge is, those are still just issues. What's the worldview? Much of our politics over the past century has been defined between by two competing worldviews on the role of government. That has been the defining question of our politics, with conservatives and Republicans saying there should be a more limited role for government and Democrats and progressives arguing that there is actually a little bit more of an activist role Mm -hmm. for government. And then we duke it out and the electorate tells us which mood they're in at that time. For a third party to work, we, one, have to understand what that landscape is. Are those is that still the two competing worldviews? I don't know that they are. No, I I think that's one of the things that's really... It's changed for the Republican Party pretty pronounced, but it's starting to change on the intellectual right, too. There are a lot of people who are much more in favor of government interventionism. This whole nationalism thing is really about that now. And so for a third choice to emerge, we have to understand what the first two choices are. Right. And what is that third worldview other than the first two suck? Mm -hmm. Right. Like that's just not enough. And we've seen that time and time again, which is why Trump was smart to actually do it within the confines of of one of the parties. Um. And I don't think either, you know, I'm not sure either party right now has sort of that compelling message. And it won't be able to for some time because Trump is the is the argument. Yeah. Right. Right now between both parties. It is around an individual, not about a worldview. So since you brought up that you worked in 
Virginia and um, how these focus groups talk about how the Democratic Party is the party of blacks and gays and Hispanics and women and all that, that all that stuff. It seems to me that the Democratic the the the, the, the sort of Beto kind of approach to this stuff where he's leaning all the way in denouncing white supremacy and calling this a white supremacist country, racist country, and all that kind of stuff. Let's put aside whatever historical or factual basis there is to those claims. It doesn't strike me as awesome politics. And one of the things that's sort of – I've brought this up a couple times on here. You know, my first job in Washington was working for this guy, Ben Wattenberg, who was an old DLC Democrat. He was a Johnson speechwriter, and I grew up sort of – on the job, learning a lot about in- internecine Democratic stuff more than Republican stuff. and But for most of my politically aware life, the, the, the black left of the Democratic Party defined the, the outermost left-wing position on a lot of political stuff, Jesse Jackson and mm-hmm. all of that. And out of nowhere, it seems in the last five years, black voters, African-American voters, particularly middle-aged African-American voters... Um, still largely, obviously, Democrat, have become much more pragmatic and certainly no longer defined the bleeding edge of the left in the Democratic Party. I mean, I think we were on a show together when we were talking about Ralph Northam. I mean, the reason why Ralph Northam survived is because African-American voters in Virginia said he shouldn't resign. Right. And and so now you have like the white, the sort of white, what I call the barista socialists, right, who are much more into AOC than I think. I think people th- seem to think that AOC represents this new minority coalition and i think she does politically in congress right but in terms of her actual voters she won in part because it was an incredibly low turnout in that crowley uh, upset and in part because the her margin of victory were from white left-wing young people and what does that mean for the the, the two questions are one is like pushing this white supremacy thing isn't that going to push the last vestiges of the old sort of joe white joe lunch bucket FDR coalition voter into the hands of the Republicans, and two, how do you build up an identity? How do you build up a sort of a philosophy for a party that is based on this sort of identity politics coalition stuff? Well, that, the second question is a challenge for both parties right now. Sure, right. I mean, let's be honest. Donald Trump is running just as much on identity politics I, as I agree. As you know, as he's right up there with the best of them on on that, but. It's a line that that I think you need to walk politically. You would think calling out white supremacy and racism would be something people can get behind. Uh, Part of the just so yeah. where I'm coming from on this, if you're talking about Goebbels like yes. you know <laughs> white supremacy, or you're talking about the alt right stuff or the Klan, no problem denouncing. Yes, that. that's not what Beto's do. Beto's definition of white supremacy is basically any institution. That was run by white people 50 years ago. I mean, he's talking about the country to its core. He's talking about our founding documents. He's talking about sort of America writ large. And I think that's at least that's what a lot of white people hear. Mm -hmm. And so it seems to me denouncing racism, you get away with pretty easily because it's the right thing to do. Yes. When you start talking about white supremacy and it seems like you're defining it as sort of the warp and woof of all of American history and all white people are racist, if that's what the – messages, that's a problem. Sure. But the other side is doing it, too, in in a lot of ways, right? I think back to Charlottesville, where a lot of Democrats came out, rightfully so, and denounced what was happening on the streets of Charlottesville. And 
went after the president and the pushback from the president's allies was, see, now they're calling all white people racist. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not what they were doing by any stretch of the imagination. But it was sort of making sort of the politics of victimhood for all the the rights attacks on the left for – for the politics of victimhood, I feel like the Republicans or the the Trump supporting Republicans at least are doing it more than anyone right now. Look, my my look, and I think that's right. My formula on this is 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 simple: call out racism, but don't call everybody racist, mm. right? And that to me is yeah, is sure. where you ought to be, because and this alludes to something you said earlier in in our conversation. Politics used to be about the politics of addition. There's a lot of people out there who voted for Donald Trump who don't like Donald Trump. Mm. I'd say at least 6%, maybe a couple more, of his voters voted for him because they don't... Voted for him even though they did not like him, Mm -hmm. but they liked something else less. That might have been Hillary. That might have been the system. Right. Um, That might have been the media, and they liked that he was... Whatever it was. They didn't like him. They don't like his rhetoric. They don't like his dog whistles. They don't like his treatment of women, but they voted for him because something else they didn't like less. If Democrats have any chance of winning those people back, and I think that's the ballgame. I think mm-hmm. that 6% of soft Trump supporters is the ballgame. To call them all racist or enabling racism is not smart politics. Mm-hmm. To call out legitimate racism and appeal to them to feel the same way mm-hmm. and to identify it, that's different. And I, I think that, that is yeah, smart yeah. politics. Yeah, yeah. Now, where I think some of the, you know, where Democrats are right now is a lot of Democrats do believe in their heart of hearts that there is still a significant amount of institutional racism Mm -hmm. that is out there. And I think that's a legitimate conversation for we as a people to be having. Is there institutional racism baked into the criminal justice system is a legitimate conversation for us to have. But once it starts, you have that conversation in the context of a political campaign, it's easy for it to spin out of control on both sides of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For people to get their backs up one yeah. way or another. And then it becomes the dynamic that you're talking about. I think if Democrats can, can keep that conversation measured and avoid calling all Trump people racist or enablers of racism, call out those who are, mm-hmm. right? When David Duke praises the president, like that's fair game. But I want those Trump supporters out there who are uncomfortable with how he speaks about race and society to eventually come back, come my way, and that's going to require appealing to them, not attacking them. Mm-hmm. Um, just as a fun side note, I have on pretty good authority from a bunch of different sources, including people who've talked to the president about various things and all of this, that my longtime theory, which I've written about a bunch of times, is that well, I do think that – I mean, let's put aside how racist is Donald Trump, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. angels on the head of a pin kind of thing. But we can, um, I certainly think he's got antediluvian racial attitudes that I find utterly recognizable as a New Yorker, mm-hmm. right? A lot of people want to think that racism is just this phenomenon of the South. That's one flavor of racism. Mm-hmm. There's also a tribal New York City yes. thing that is yes. less about – white supremacy then it's like my tribe's better than your tribe the blacks are ruining this or the italians suck yes and he comes from that sort of doorman racist world which i don't think it defines him the irony and one of the reasons why we can't have nice things is that i don't think racism is a primary motivator of him but he was convinced that it was a primary motivator of republicans and so he had to be convinced by 
Chris Christie and Corey Lewandowski and all those people to denounce uh, David Duke because he was like – he actually thought that David Duke was a major constituency of the Republican Party. And he's like, why should I have to denounce him? You know, I, Basically, he needed – he thought he needed his voters. And the best example of this – it's not actually about racism but it's about bigotry – was at the GOP convention. There's this amazing moment that I never thought got enough attention where it was after the, the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando and Trump – denounces the shooting sure and he says we basic i'm paraphrasing but we cannot live in a country where people can murder lgbtq people this is an outrage and no american should stand for it and the audience applauds and he's he's stunned and he's taken aback and he goes off script and he says i can't tell you how proud i am and and surprised or something like that that even this audience would mm. cheer that. It's just like, what the hell? It's like, like I've been around Republicans for all my life. It's, I, I, I don't think any of them were ever in favor of Islamic terrorists going to gay nightclubs and shooting up the place, right. you know. Right. But he has these assumptions about the Republican Party, and they become self-fulfilling because he ends up rewarding parts of that coalition that actually need to be crushed or at least tamped down or kept at bay or re-educated. And instead rewards them and gives them an outsized voice and also gives an outside voice to the people who want to monetize them like the Steve Bannons of the world. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why we're having the Republican Party get transformed before our eyes. I think that's right. I think he is driven by tribalism more than anything else. And right. his assumptions. And narcissism. Of, right. Yes. Yeah, right. Yes. But assumptions of tribalism and assumptions of what his tribe, you know, who the, who the tribes in his coalition are and what right. they care about, what they what they want. Which is why I just think the whole notion of tribalism across the board is very dangerous right now. And I would, as a Democrat, uh, it wouldn't surprise you to hear. I think it is worse on, on the right. But I always caution my friends on the left who argue politically that demographics are destiny, right? When we've heard that mantra now for some time, demographics are destiny. And what they're saying is if Democrats just work to turn out the members of the Obama coalition, we don't need to worry about how much we're losing white working class voters. I don't think that is a majority of the Democratic establishment, but it's enough of one that that has seeped into some of the electoral strategies mm -hmm. that have pursued. And I think that is that is dangerous. Um, that feeds into some of the the tribal conflict. If white working class voters say hear that and say, oh, so you're saying you don't need me. You don't want me. You mm -hmm. don't you're not going to speak to me. Now, I would argue I don't think that Democrats are making anti-white arguments mm -hmm. the way some of the members of Trump's tribal coalition are saying things that that are more challenging. But I think your your bigger point is right, that he has assumptions of which members of his tribal coalition are going to carry the day for him, and he plays to that. Yeah. So let me. Uh, this is a strange question, but it occurs to me because, like, I'm hearing you say these things about what Democrats are saying and not saying, and I'm trying to think of counterexamples, and I can think of some, but it occurs to me that part of the problem the Democrats have that the Republicans don't. Um, it's sort of the, part of the asymmetry between the parties. Is is that? How to put this? So, just so you know where I'm coming from, my view, which re listeners are now getting sick of me talking about, is that one of the reasons why we have so much partisanship today is that the parties have never been weaker, and yes. that, so that the yes. party functions are not being properly handled by institutions that actually have a long-term interest in maintaining their credibility. They're instead being outsourced to activists and institutions, Planned Parenthood, NRA, Fox News, MSNBC. 
And those institutions have different incentive structures for messaging than a party would if it actually had all of the power. And so a lot of the counterexamples I'm trying to come up with about people saying that all white people are racist and that we're looking forward to the day when white people don't run anything anymore and all these kinds of things. Actually, you're right. Don't tend to come from actual official Democrats. But you get a lot of that stuff from academia. You get a lot of that stuff from the hothouse of Twitter activism. You get a lot of that stuff from professional activists who are sort of in the in the mix of trying to like sort of move the country leftward. And the Republicans have those kinds of activists too. Sure. But they don't have positions at Harvard or Yale or, or, or Princeton or even University of Wisconsin. They don't have – outside of Fox News – They don't have um, a lot of perches in the mainstream media. You have a lot of these people, you know, what was her name? Sarah Leong, who was an editorial writer for the Washington, for the New York Times, um, who got this big promotion and to write about tech stuff. And they went back and looked at her Twitter history. And the stuff that she said about white people was just sort of, by my light, sort of textbook racism. And I think there are a lot of people who feel like they're on the outs on the right. Look at this. And they don't differentiate between the Democratic Party and these sorts of uh, sort of intellectual or cultural influencers who clearly are aligned with the Democratic Party. Sure, although I would argue that they're just in different places on the right. They're, you know, uh, you, you've heard some pretty horrible things said from pulpits around the country. Sure, sure, right, I get that. Over time. Right, but this, this, right and, and, and other cultural and institutional perches. That, sure, it may not be in academia, but there are other places where that's coming from. Uh, your bigger point about so the weakness of, of the parties is 100% true. We have been, I think we've always been somewhat of a weak party system, at least in the post-Tammany Hall you know, yeah. era, and especially in the post-Watergate era, where all the political reforms that were passed to avoid another Watergate really hurt and impacted the power and uh, of the parties to influence their own internal politics. And well, look, the primary system. Elaine Kmark is the first person to make this point to me, but like, or not to me, but I've heard her make it. We're the first industrialized democracy whose parties have given up the power to nominate their own. That's candidates. right. And that comes from that. They're always there've been primaries for a hundred years, but they never mattered until seventy-two. I mean, I <laughs> I took a group of Georgetown students to London for the week leading up to the 2017 snap general election. And we were trying to just, what are the similarities and differences? And one of the biggest takeaways was how much more people were tuned into the parties, mm-hmm. right? They don't have party platforms. They have party manifestos. And we did a lot of sort of man and woman on the street interviews in London. And the number of just your average Londoners walking down the street that could tell you what was in the Labor Party manifesto yeah. or what was in the, the Tory uh, manifesto was astonishing to me as the former spokesman for the Democratic Party. I'm not sure I've read the Democratic Party platform right. in a number of years. But, you know, these people were, were were really keyed into it, right? The parties do, in smoke-filled back rooms, pick their candidates for parliament. They say, here's your budget right. and here's, your, here's our platform. Put it in your own words, but this is what you're saying. Right. We don't do that here. Yeah. Um, or else Donald Trump never could have gotten the nomination, not in a million years. And so we are. And so we do outsource it. And within each party, the coalition battle for control over the messaging of the party and the movement is fierce and it is cutthroat and it does elevate voices who are very strident. And part and the candidates are looking around trying to figure out which way to go. Where's the incentive structure for them in that dynamic? And I think both sides... Uh, both parties have had to grapple with that. Yeah. So I, 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 
this is an obsession of mine, but just to clarify my first point. Yeah. I agree with you entirely. There are actors on the right in pulpits, in megachurches, at various clickbait websites yeah. who do the same thing I'm talking about. That Talk radio. Right. Talk right. radio, for was sure. Was a big driver of that in the 90s. But before we started this conversation where you're talking about it's not really left and right anymore. It's inside and outside. Mm-hmm. Almost all of those institutions on the right, they cultivate the sense that they are on the outside. And the people who control the commanding heights of the culture, Hollywood, uh, elite education, uh, mainstream media, they give off the impression to the people I'm talking about as being the inside, the official establishment. And so when the the Democrats, the Democrats for those voters yeah. are seen as the establishment as and so or as the party of government. Jonah, can insiders. you name one of these, you know, art political arguments groups that doesn't position themselves as on the outside trying to fight against the right? They all do. They all say it. They all say my group has been left behind. Right. My worldview has been left behind. And it is this thing that is holding you know, the Illuminati, whatever, sure, right, sure. is holding us back. But I got, I, and even within the elite institutions, people are saying that. No, I know. Everybody thinks that everyone thinks that they're the victim. And I agree with all that. But my only point is, is that if you are a somewhat politically engaged American living in the suburbs of St. Louis, if you turn on the TV the people who you, who Entertainment Tonight covers, right? The people yes. that are part of the news, the people who you hear peeing on, on Middle America from a great height at the Oscars, all of that messaging is for normal, a normally engaged person, on the right at least, feels like there isn't that much difference between the Hollywood mega donor or the, the, the MSNBC host or the elite at the Lawrence Tribe academic and the Democrats, and that they're the party of the elites. Now, I understand everybody wants to claim the other guys are the party of the elites. Yeah, I mean, those same voters in the suburbs of St. Louis might feel that way when they're hearing those folks, but then they also look at Wall Street and they look at sort of, you know, you know, they listen to you on Fox uh-huh. News and say, well, you're just in the back pocket of Wall Street, which is screwing me too. Yeah, I wish. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I just wish I was in their wallet. No, but, right? But so... That's the battle. We're, we're, we're both sides are trying to speak to those people saying right. we got your back and the other side doesn't. Democrats have been trying to do it up until the Trump presidency from sort of a class and economic perspective, whereas I think a lot of Republicans were trying to speak to those people from a more cultural mm-hmm. perspective. And I always argued culture will trump almost anything. Mm-hmm. Right? No, no pun intended. Culture tends to win. People we are very cultural. Uh, uh, oriented as a people. And so if you feel like my way of life is being threatened, that's going to that's going to win over any other argument, whereas Democrats were trying to win these people over by talking about, you know, warning them not to vote against their economic self-interest. Right. That alone sounds elitist. Yeah. Right. We got to be able to. What's the matter with Kansas was a pretty smug book. Right. We got to be able to connect with folks on a cultural level. Right. The problem is and this is what fuels our tribalism. The single greatest predictor of where you vote, of how you voted in 2016 was not your ideology, as you know. It was your geography. Mm -hmm. Closer you were to a city, the more likely you voted for Hillary. The further away from a city you were, the more likely you were to vote for Trump. And there's a big cultural rift between, you know, urban and, and, and rural America, between coastal and heartland America. You know, when I go on Fox News as a Democrat, 
I always, if you don't count my Twitter feed afterwards, which is validation of the dark side of humanity, the number of people that will stop me in an airport and say, hey, you're that Democrat on Fox News, right? I don't agree with you, but I appreciate hearing your perspective because you don't shout, you don't sound crazy, you don't talk down to us. And I think that's the problem is that everyone feels like they're being spoken down to by the other side. Mm -hmm. And that's real. And that's, that's very real. And we all have to do a better job of that. Um, and I think it has caused some problems for the Democratic Party, but I think it's also caused problems for the Republican Party, which allows somebody like Donald Trump to say, you know what, both of you are, but you're, you're all right, right? Yeah. Both parties have been have been speaking down to you, and that's why I'm going to take over one of them, mm-hmm. and we're going to, you know, give you a voice. Democrats have to get back to that. Now, I do think that there's, you know, in an era like this, there's. There are a lot of strident voices on the left, but there's still a lot of strident voices on the right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Ralph Reed the other day coming out, right, with what he said, saying, you know, evangelicals have a moral obligation to vote for Donald Trump. I know a lot of Democrats of faith Mm -hmm. who don't want to be told they are any less faithful because they disagree with Donald Trump. That to me is no different than my old boss, who I still love dearly, Hillary Clinton, you know, and the deplorables comment, mm-hmm. um, which I still think was taken out of context, <laughs> but is, you know. But it was a, a wonderful giveaway in, in the bare knuckle world of politics. Right. But the rest of her comment that didn't get any pickup is where I think we really need to focus the conversation, which was she's like, yeah, you know, you have all this basket of deplorables that are supporting him. But the rest of the, the people who are supporting him are good, hardworking people who feel left behind. That part doesn't get as much pickup. Right, because right? didn't she say it was like 50-50? That, said, yeah, that was the that problem. That ended up being the problem, right? That yeah. 50% of his supporters are, are in this basket of deplorables, but the other 50% are people who just feel left behind, and we yeah. as Democrats need to talk to them. Yeah. That was well, – I wish she had led with that and gotten rid of the percentage. Right. But <laughs> if she had said 5% or 1%. Or some of, right? Just, yeah. you know, yeah. some of his supporters are here, but, but yeah. you know, a lot of them aren't. Um, and both sides right now feel like they are being told, right? I mean, we, I, there's the, the, the faith example, but also like the number. Don't tell me I'm less American because I don't support this president. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And that's part of our problem um, is we are going after people's motivations and sort of their own cultural identification in order to make these political points. And that's just alienating all of us. Yeah. Um, all right. So we've gone along and, um, but, and we didn't do as much punditry as I, I – Envision, but it's okay. People get sick of punditry. <laughs> um, so I'm a Fox News contributor. You're yeah. a Fox News contributor. Until 2016, the people who came up to you and said, I disagree with you, but yeah, thank you for being on, came up to me and said, I love you. You're great. Right. I get much less of that now. And um, But what is the reaction from your um, fellow pointy-headed academics in, in, in liberal academia, to be pejorative about it, about you going on Fox? Are you enable? Are you a, like a... Are you like part of the Vichy government? Are you? you know, I mean, do they get really pissed off at you? So it's funny, and I'm taking it outside of academia, but just sort of the left in general. Yeah. Uh, when I tell people I'm a Fox contributor, people on the left first they either look at me like "why," right, or "oh, I'm sorry," right. <laughs> I get I get both of those from the left, and then I'll usually get a little bit of a tirade of how can you work for that terrible, you know, evil place. But then I'll then they'll kind of lower their voice and they'll say, "But I'm glad someone is." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. glad you're there. Yeah. Someone's got to hear it. 
And my argument to them is, look, I was the DNC communications director for a couple of years. And during the entire time, I never put a single surrogate on Fox News. Mm-hmm. I didn't go on Fox News. I didn't. That doesn't mean no Democrats went on, right? Sure. But, uh, but my office did not place anyone there. I didn't put the chair of the DNC on Fox News. And I think that, in retrospect, was a huge mistake. Mm-hmm. And it's a hard place to be. My first night as a contributor was election night 2016. Yeah. That was my coming out party. I mean, nice. That was a hell of a night to get, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. a hell of a first day at the office. And sometimes it's hard, particularly with the opinion uh, shows over there, Mm -hmm. uh, which is why I limit myself to the news shows. But I say to folks on our side all the time, like, this is a large audience, the largest on cable, and we have a choice. We can... uh, We can let Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson define what it means to be a Democrat for this audience, or we can go on and define it for them ourselves. And so, yeah, I get a lot of people who will come at me on Twitter and say, from the right, and say, why don't you go back to CNN or MSNBC where you belong? Mm -hmm. That that phrase, where you belong, always gets me Mm because they're essentially saying there is no room for your perspective here. But then I'll get people who will stop me who aren't on Twitter and say, I just, I appreciate hearing your perspective. You got me to think. And I think that's part of it. And I, I will get people on the left who will come at me mm-hmm. and say, I can't believe you work there. But then they'll say, I'm glad someone is carrying the flag and yeah. helping people hear our perspective. Yeah. I get similar stuff because now for a core group of Fox viewers, and I don't think it's the whole audience by any stretch of the imagination, but a vocal part of the Fox audience thinks that to be a Republican means to be all in for Donald Trump. Yes. And that therefore, and to be a Republican means to be a conservative and to be a (laughs) conservative means to be all in for Donald Trump. I thought it was hilarious. Lou Dobbs the other day Mm -hmm. talking about this Kurdish disaster. And for all we know, while we've been recording this, there's a even worse bloodbath was on a tirade denouncing in his words, all of these rhinos who disagree with, with our president. Right. And the thing is, it was like literally, the entire Republican Party, certainly almost all of its leadership was doing this. You know, everyone from my wife's boss, Nikki Haley, to Lindsey Graham, uh, Mitch McConnell. And I've always hated the term rhino yeah. because it makes it sound like you are intellectually or ideologically insufficient because you're not sufficiently partisan about your about a party. But, like, you can't call the entire Republican Party Republican in name only, and it mean anything. It's like they're literally the Republicans. If your definition of what it means to be a Republican is your level of support for Donald Trump, like you don't get more so on the Hill than Lindsey Graham, right? Right, right. And then, but to attack Lindsey Graham as being a rhino suddenly because he disagrees with the president on this one thing, right? I mean, it's it's ridiculous. Yeah, um, but I do think. I, look, it's why I think your voice. You know, and my voice are important on Fox News is to help people understand that there are, you know, more than just two jerseys that yeah. that that people are wearing these days. That there are different perspectives. I think what you're doing with the dispatch is important. Oh, thank you. Thank you know, to um to to sort of make the the broader conservative case again, um, or just you know remind people what it at least once meant to be a conservative yeah. in American politics and why it's important. You know the you know that that we all. Right. I, I And look, it's not just me. I've got Republican friends who go on MSNBC mm-hmm. and and they get a lot of the same hate from both. Oh, sides, sure, right? sure. sure. Um, we are just our media has has sort of um, adopted our tribal nature. And I think it's important for us to sort of pop these filter bubbles occasionally. I've had um, 
people who work at, at NBC or MSNBC tell me about what happens when, like my friend Charlie Sykes, he'll go yeah. on and he'll he'll give the MSNBC audience everything it wants to hear about Trump, but then he'll still be in favor of the tax cuts or something. Right. And the audience loses its mind. It's like, well, how could you possibly let this guy on your air to peddle this Trumpian, even though like a paragraph earlier he had said horrible things about Donald Trump. There's so much, this is a, such a problem that we've got with the balkanized media these days is that so much of it is really fan service. Yes. Where you're telling the audience what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear. It's, it's, it's all driven by the ratings. Yeah. And again, the people who are saying to me, why don't you go to CNN or MSNBC where you belong? As in this argument is only allowed to be seen right. on this channel. And this channel is where we're supposed to be free from a different perspective. You know, and a lot of it is fueled by the primetime lineups on each of these networks. Yeah. Right. Which is all opinion these days. There's very little news in the evenings on any network. It's all opinion. Um, and why when I'm at Fox, I only do the news shows. Right. Yeah. That's why I enjoy going on with you. We'll agree on a lot of things Trump sure. you know, related. But when we, then when we do get into a conversation about taxes or get into a conversation sure. about the judiciary or something else, we'll actually have a conversation and yeah, yeah. voters get two different perspectives. There's, it's hard to find that in a lot of places these days. No, I agree. I agree. And, but it's one of the reasons why we call this podcast The Remnant, because you can still find it here. Anyway, Mo, thank you so much for doing this. Enjoyed really it. Appreciate Thanks for having me. And uh, good luck at Georgetown. Thank you. And um, hope to have you on again. Anytime. I left the DNC just over four years ago. Uh-huh. My last day there was 10 days before Trump announced and three weeks before the Russians hacked us. Oh, nice. So, like, my timing's good. You should, you should say that. Um, um, but uh, so I've been there since. There's no accident. Right, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um,